Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, today on the Group Dynamics Dispatch podcast, we are very honored to have Dr. Robert Unger. Dr. Robert Unger has been practicing psychotherapist and psychoanalysis for 40 years. He was a longtime faculty member in the Master's Contemplative Psychology program at the Naropa University and served on the leadership team of that program. Pursuant to his special interest in group psychotherapy and group dynamics, he conducts several treatment and supervision groups consults to organizations on group issues, was a co-founder of the Colorado Center for the Advancement of Group Studies and the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society, and is a frequent presenter at the National Conference of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. He was awarded fellowship status in the AGPA and elected to its national board of directors. His publications include Conflict Management in Group Psychotherapy, Selection and Composition Criteria for Group Psychotherapy, Group Therapy Training at Naropa University's Contemplative Counseling Psychology Program, and Psychoanalysis in Buddhism, Paths of Disappointment. Dr. Unger received his Bachelor of Science in 1967 from the University of California, Berkeley, his MSW in 1976 from Hunter College, and his PhD in 1993 in Counseling Psychology from the University of Colorado, Boulder. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. It is great to be here. Well, we believe in transparency here at the podcast, and, and I will say Bob is my supervisor, and I have had the incredible honor of studying with him for the past 10 years, and I can't think of anybody that's been more influential in my thinking and in my clinical work than you, Bob. So this is quite an honor to uh, be here and to be actually getting to put you on the hot seat for once. And this seat is warming up, let me tell it's you. Up. Here we go. <laughs> well, the first question that we ask guests to the podcast is for you to tell us a little bit about your story of getting into groups, how you found your way into this field, and your inspiration for uh, being involved in it. Okay. Well, um, my story is one of coincidences, I think. Um, I was uh, moved to New York. Uh, after graduating from, actually after a, a year of graduate school in engineering, my original career, and I had a, a little job 
I was uh, driving a cab to make uh, ends meet part-time, and I picked up a young woman about my age uh, at Central Park West and 65th Street. She asked me to take her across the park, and by the time we had gotten across the park, she had convinced me to go see her group therapist. Oh, this really? is a very influential young woman, uh -huh. as you might imagine. So I, um, I did it. I did, and I was kind of a country bumpkin in New York, and I thought, uh, well, I'll just do what I'm told, because that's what people seem to do here. And I, uh, I made an appointment with Dr. Louis Ormont, who I didn't know at the time was a preeminent group psychotherapist. And uh, I thought, group therapy sounds fun. That would be a great place uh, to meet girls. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I went to interview with him. He, he gave me, uh, talked to me for about 20 minutes and said, well, why don't you join so-and-so group? So I joined. I said, okay. And then the last thing he says is, oh, and uh, we don't uh, do socializing outside of the group uh, uh, once you're in the group therapy. And I was shocked because I thought, well, the whole reason I was coming was to meet girls, but yeah, I was too. Purpose. Yeah, but I was too embarrassed. I was I was too embarrassed to say, well, then I don't want to do it. So I joined his group, and the uh, the 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 level of directness, the communication was totally foreign to me. It just uh, knocked me for a loop. It took me a couple of years to even figure out how to talk in that group. But um, that's actually how I developed my passion in groups. I stayed in that group for ten years and. Through that, I wound up uh, changing careers, um, studying uh, psychoanalysis and getting an MSW and developing a great passion for groups. So that, that was how it all began for me, and it's been going ever since. Wow. What were your impressions of Dr. Ormont when you first met him? The word that comes to mind is fluid. He had such a fluid mind, and he was so facile, and his access to just... Uh, 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 being able to put thoughts and feelings into words was nothing in my whole life I had ever seen. So I found that both um, absolutely intimidating and also magnetizing. I thought, uh, could I ever do something like that? But it was so it was so wonderful to behold that that's what I think um, um, captured me. Mm, wonderful. So you actually met Dr. Ormont before you met Dr. Hyman Spotnitz. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the field, really. I, I actually spent a little time with a therapist. Um, we all did once we came to New York in those days. But uh, that level of, of uh, depth and intensity was totally new to me. But uh, And I'd never heard of Dr. Ormont, but, um, of course, now we all know that he was one of the preeminent group therapists. But, right. thanks, but thanks to the driving a taxi cab, that's how it all began. So I, um, I always appreciate when things ha seem to happen by coincidence. Right. It's uh, synchronicity or like an auspicious coincidence, Trump. Mm, would very say, much. Right? Yep. Yes. So how did you go from there into getting involved in modern analysis and studying at the center again? Oh, well, um, I, I had this therapist when I started the group with Dr. Orman, who was a training therapist somewhere. I'm not sure where. A friend of mine had referred me to him. And w once the whole, uh, once I was with Ormont for a while, the, uh, I started giving that guy a really hard time, and he he made it easy for me to uh, stop with him because he moved to Staten Island. <laughs> so he's, so I was dispatched. So, um, I, but I wanted to continue in group therapy. So somebody in the group uh, was seeing a modern analyst, and they uh, suggested that I see that modern analyst. So I started working with that analyst, and that analyst was one of the. Um, uh, one of the original founders of the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. It was just getting born at that 71, 1971, 72. 
and um, I got, shall we say, seduced by the analyst into becoming a student of psychoanalysis. So I, I did that and then that because it, it was pretty wide open. Anybody could take a course. And I took a semester or two of courses and then I decided to throw my hat into the ring and went to Hunter Hunter School of Social Work so I could have a practicing clinical degree. Mm. So there was really something about the school and the center at that time and the approach that really galvanized you in a particular way? Yeah, I, I do remember. You know, you know, when you hear these stories, uh, you hear them, but when it, for, when it refers to yourself, it's always interesting. I, I got my first class. It was a basic class, and um, the teacher was uh, Dr. Jack Kerman, who is still a teacher in modern analysis all these years. And I was in that class a session or two, and I said to myself, boy, this feels like home. Mm. And that is always a wonderful experience if you're lucky enough to have such an experience. So, so I thought, ah, this is, I actually, this is a place I actually belong. And I, I don't think I had ever had that experience in life before. Mm. So that's always a, that's always a treat and a motivator. Do you know what it was about it that felt homey, that settled you or um, touched you in that kind of way? I'm hesitating because uh, it's a great question, and I, I've never thought about it exactly in that way, so let's see what comes up. Mm -hmm. um, resonance. Mm. Something about the approach, which was uh, some combination of, of a bit theoretical but very practical and just seemed to be very intelligent, just made so much sense, and not in an intellectual way particularly, but in an emotional way. It just felt right um, to be there with him in that class um, at that time. And it just felt, ah, I can get into this, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I find so inspiring about working with you is I also... In addition to just, just learning so much from you, I feel a sense of lineage connected with some of these people like Lou Ormont, Jack Herman, and Hyman Spotnitz, um, among others. Can I add one? Please. Leslie Rosenthal. Leslie Rosenthal, indeed. And um, I was actually hoping that we could talk about some of these figures um, like Spotnitz, like Rosenthal, and the incredible differences, really, in the way that they worked. I mean, it's mm -hmm. under maybe the heading of modern psychoanalysis, but these were very, these are very different people, very different personalities. I wonder if you could speak at all to your impressions uh, of those differences. Sure. And the first thing about that is, I uh, remember the original catalog for the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. I haven't seen one for a long time, so I don't know if it's still stated this way, but the, I think in the first paragraph, it says we learn to use our own personalities as agents of change. So, from the get-go, the notion there was not uh, subscri uh, subscribing to a very specific form, but to use the principles as filtered through your own personalities. So they were very different, even though there were certain certain things, uh, similar characteristics in the way they worked. But Spotnitz, to me, was always the giant. You know, briefly, his history was um, he was a training analyst, I think, initially at New York Psychoanalytic, and then... Um, where he developed, and that I'm not too sure of, we might want to check that, but um, he was one of the first people to say you can use psychoanalytic principles to work with schizophrenics, and that was verboten in those days. You didn't do that. Um, uh, there's a lot of um, vocabulary around uh, uh, object transference and, uh, and narcissistic transference. It goes on and on, but basically that was frowned upon to work with very regressed people, but... Uh, he, he had, saw them as workable. He saw them as workable, and that got him into some trouble. 
And one of the, uh, the, the ways he was able to work with them was not to use the traditional interpretive approaches that are uh, characteristic of classical psychoanalysis, but to use a lot of the mirroring and joining techniques that a lot of different schools of therapy use uh, these days. But it was um, somewhat um, out of the ordinary in, in those days. And he uh, was able to form relationships with very regressed people. I saw many demonstrations of this. I, for the, most of my exposure to Spotnitz was through lectures. He had a series of lectures, some of which are on recording, which you can find these days. But a, a Friday night series of lectures for many years uh, at a school in the village, plus lots of conferences and stuff. But I was lucky. Uh, after I was out here, I called him just when people were starting to do things on the telephone. This is about 20, 20, 25 years ago. And I asked him if he was doing anything on the telephone, and he said no, but he would set something up, and he went to considerable expense. In those days, there weren't conference phones that are so easy to do that with as we have now, to uh, put me in a group, one of his training groups, which was totally wild. Um, there must have been 40 people there who had been working with him for 40 years. You never knew if it was training or therapy or whatever. But um, he just had a um, – he was very paradoxical. Um, he had a way of saying very um, provocative things in very non-provocative ways, which uh, itself is extremely paradoxical. And when I think of his manner of working, um, the person, the, the, the teacher that comes closest to that that I have experienced is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who was unpredictable but always had a beat on what was going on. So I always think of those two as somewhat similar. So that's Spotnitz and I, and the other folks were all in Spotnitz lineage. Actually, what happened? He was a, he was a training analyst at National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis. I believe the story was that they um, they found him too radical to be supervising there. So a bunch of his supervisees who were very devoted to him said, "The hell with you," so to speak, and went and formed the Center for Modern Psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And what was brilliant about Spotnitz, another brilliant thing about Spotnitz, was that. He never identified specifically with any school. So several modern psychoanalytic schools um, started, but he never signed on to be a, a faculty member on, at any of the schools. He would always consult. He was always the honorary president, but he remained a teaching entity uh, independent of organization, and I always have admired that about him. So, so modeled being a free agent. Yeah, yeah, that which allowed him to... Uh, Teach in the purest form of teaching that he could teach. So, um, so that would that's um, we talk about Spotness forever and what he did. But that's probably enough. Did you want to hear from others? <laughs> well, what I'm so struck by with Spotness was it sounds like he could be um, very surprising, but he could be surprising in a way that felt disarming and supportive to people. They didn't feel um, they didn't feel assaulted by it per se. So um, he was so. It seemed like he was just so alive in how he connected with people. He used live words. Yeah, and there was always uh, there was always a sense that he didn't quite believe what he was saying. That is, he was. Uh, I think of um, a, another teacher, not in the psychotherapy lineage specifically, that I've always learned a lot from is Alan Watts, and he always talks about the relativity of language and words. And Spotness always gave that impression that he could be saying the most serious things, but he wasn't attached to what he was saying. And that, so that form of teaching gets right into the body, uh, 
You know, it's not intellectual. And even when he was saying what sounded like horrible things, there was always a, a touch of humor and a touch of irony and a tense touch of play in, in his work with people. I heard him say things like, now, so-and-so is really a horrible person. That person I've worked with for years, and they're a horrible person. And you know that he was actually um, talking to that person in the audience and at the same time uh, admiring the person, at the same time knowing that they're in fact a horrible person. So, it invites everybody to be horrible. Yeah, exactly, and not be not not worry too much about their own horribleness, so right. to speak. So it was very, it was, it was very. I feel very honored to have actually interfaced mm -hmm. with with him in my in my life. Yeah. And then I understand one of the other figures that was so important to you was Leslie Rosenthal. Would you be willing to say a little bit about him and what struck you about working with him? Well, he um, was an incredible craftsman. He's always the example for me. That, you know, in teaching group for so many years, uh, people seem to think you have to be have a big personality and be very pizzazzy to do group, um, to be a group person. Just like so many leaders in the culture in, in, in any arena uh, lead with uh, lead forward with charisma. And Dr. Rosenthal was very, very smart. Uh, but did not lead with charisma. He was a master craftsman. He took, because uh, he was in Spotnitz lineage, he took uh, so much of the principles of what he did, but did it, uh, but taught in a very um, straightforward, craftsmanlike way. And what was so wonderful about that was that you could, you got the feeling you could do it. You didn't have to have any particular kind of personality to be a, a, a group leader or a group therapist. You could just learn the skills and learn the principles and do them in the way you would do them and not have to make yourself into anything um, that you weren't. So that was really uh, the takeaway I got from Dr. Rosenthal, uh, also in a group with him for 20 years uh, until he died about five or six years ago via the phone. By that time, the, the conference you know, phone kind of environment was really much more um, alive, and I spent... Um, uh, all those years uh, calling into a group uh, in New York, visiting uh, the group on occasion when I would go to New York. But uh, that group today, uh, we maintained ourselves as a um, peer group, and we're still uh, meeting. And at least once a session, we uh, invoke Dr. Rosenthal. Somebody says something, and, oh, it, I was thinking of Dr. Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal would say this. So his teaching really got in, into inside of us. He's still so alive in the room. Yeah. Yep. Well, and it sounds like his style was, he wasn't trying to make his supervisees or his group members like him. He was really inviting them to do Exactly. Training. And that's so often what I feel in the supervisory relationship with you, that you're really inviting your supervisees to be themselves and to use their voice rather than feeling like they have to copy or sign on to a particular way of doing yeah. things. Yeah, and that is... That is your, your grandfather, Dr. Rosenfeld, <laughs> your, your teaching grandfather. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, if I have the story correct, you went from being in New York in this one very vibrant particular group situation to coming to Colorado and being in another very vibrant group situation with Shogun Trunker Rinpoche and the Shambhala community. Right. And so I'd be curious to hear any thoughts that you may have about that experience even from kind of a group lens, from seeing Trungpa Rinpoche work as a, as a group leader of sorts and just any ways in which that landed with you? Well, it was very different because, having thought it through, every group 
from what I've learned, has very similar dynamics. And any group of the leader, in particular, has transferences to the leader. To the leader, um, in that in that environment, um, as I understand it, or did understand it, or have understood it, uh, there there's not an emphasis on working with the transferences to the leader. So they would get played out in lots of ways, in a way that I wasn't used to in the analytic world or in the group dynamics world. So I think what really captured me about that environment, and I had connected with it when I was still in New York, and then for various reasons when I felt it was just time for me to leave New York, I stayed, I really came out to Colorado through that environment, uh, uh, moved to the Shambhala Mountain Center. But what what the real connection was for me was the emphasis on on self-reflection, being able to have all of your own feelings and work with them and tolerate them, as seems, you know, very simply stated, would be in the meditative or Buddhist practices, which were very akin to me, similar in, in what I had learned uh, all those years in studying psychoanalysis. So the culture was different, certainly, and the culture organized itself differently. But that those base principles were uh, were very um, familiar to me, and and what enabled me to connect. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there was so much similarity in, in what was valued and kind of what each person was working their edge with in terms of being present and not getting too rigid, even yeah. if the interactional style between the leader and the members was maybe different in a in particular yeah, kind of way. Exactly, in what was emphasized. Yeah, yeah. So then, really, your style, it seems like, is so heavily influenced by both psychoanalysis and Buddhism. And um, I'd be curious, it leads me into this question, which was really one of um, the core reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, because I'm so interested in hearing about when you lead a group, what's happening inside of you, what's happening inside your mind, what's happening inside your body, how you're deciding which interventions you might use at a particular moment, I realize it's not that conscious, but I'd be really curious to hear you talk a little bit about what you sense is happening inside of you when you're leading the group. Well, as you said, a lot of it isn't conscious anymore. Um, it's I've been doing it for so long, um, I kind of skate it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it feels like skating to me. Um, uh, to me, it's uh, I'm a movement guy. Uh, I have uh, trouble sitting still, and groups to me are pure movement. Uh, everything is just happening in the present, on and on and on. So my, you know, uh, from uh, what appears to be one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. So I've learned to stay with the present uh, and not dwell too much on anything that has happened or is happening for that matter. So uh, to that end, uh, very much as um, I, I think the principles that I learned from Rosenthal and also a lot of, a lot of study and reading in, in systems, dynamic and systems approach, that what's happening in the group is of the whole group. And I think that's what, what informs me more than anything mm-hmm. uh, in, in leading groups. So not that I'm always paying specific attention to that, but Ormont was very valuable in in uh, in my learning of that in his notion of the um, his notion of bridging that is his notion of bridging which is uh, in a sense a technique but actually honors the fact that when what is happening in the group is affecting everybody at the at that moment and that everybody at that moment is having feelings about what's happening in the group mm-hmm. so 
keeping that in mind, it enables me to be quite fluid and just move around. I, I don't, uh, uh, my own style, uh, informed in, in that regard, is not to spend too much time uh, working with individuals in the group setting or doing what's sometimes called individual therapy in the group setting. I know that if any two people are working on something, that everybody else is having feelings about that, and my style is to not let that go on, not let dyads or triads go on very long without, if it's not happening spontaneously, bringing other people into it, because what's happening in any moment between any two or three people is something that's happening in the group. So that, that, that informs me and allows me to feel quite free in just moving around the group. So something will be happening, and I like to just see... Uh, the, the other thing about being in psychoanalysis for many years and studying psychoanalysis for many years is the notion of free association, uh, core to psychoanalysis. And when you practice for a long time, you really learn to trust your associations. Uh, I know that if I'm tense or feel aggression in a group, I really watch myself and I'll hold back my free associations. But if I'm fairly relaxed, so I have a sense that um, there's some relaxation in the group, I will just let myself move around the group. Um, and, and thinking of that as demonstrating to the group members that they can move around the group as well. They don't have to stay fixated on one idea or, or one relationship being talked about or one person talking about something that they can move around, they can uh, use their own associations to, um, to um, just reflect on what's going on in the group. And that tends to make a lively group. And I ended up, I'm, I'm a selfish guy. I really like, it's tricky because I like to be in a lively group, but I've also learned that you don't try to make a group anything that it's not. If a group isn't lively, you just have to go along with it. Mm -hmm. But if I just, through my own association, associating to what's going on in the group, if that um, helps the energy move freely in the group, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something that I, I think speaks to what I really noticed seems like part of the hallmark of your kind of leadership that um, it seems like you're always scanning the room. You're aware of the person that's talking, but you're simultaneously very aware of what's happening for other members. And I'm, I'm struck by being in groups with you where you'll um, notice what somebody's body is communicating and then bridge them uh, via their body in a sense, almost like if somebody's tapping their foot or if somebody's hunching yeah. over. Uh, invite them through their body posture in a way, like saying, what's that foot saying? Or invite them into the process itself. Yeah. Uh, invite is the, invite is the word. I really like the idea of inviting people into groups. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm making up from my past in high school, like all of us people do, where I didn't get invited enough, you know. So I thought, well, the hell with that. I'm going to invite people into the group. And that's really, I, I think, just as a, whether you call it an approach or a technique, People, people like to be invited, so why not invite them? Mm -hmm. And just what you mentioned, there's a, you can always find some notion on which to invite them. If you just invite them out of the clear blue, they might be a little startled. But if, if you have some sense that they're connecting in some way or they're using body language or something as, as your bridge to the invitation, then it's, um, it's, it's, it's more seamless. It's got better movement to it. Mm -hmm. And another thing, speaking of movement, that was also coming to mind is it seems like humor is such a part of the way you work as well, that you lead, it's as much a laughter cure as it is a talking cure, in a sense. So I'd be curious to hear you uh, 
uh, say anything about your use of humor as a group leader? Well, that I really owe to Dr. Ormoth. There's, he was just brilliant with humor. And uh, he, he, he talked, yeah, I think he talked about it once as, um, as yoga for the ego or something like that. But the most tense moments in a group, and this was the group I was in for 10 years with him, was really, it was, it was the 60s and 70s and smart young New York people. It was really intense. And sometimes it was, it was just almost unbearable. And he could just cut it with humor and not, and it wasn't a dismissive. It was just showing the possibilities of how to work with your own tension. And he was just brilliantly funny. And that's, I, I owe that, I owe that to him. I, I have in my mind, you know, any number of, uh, any number of times that he was just masterful that way. So it's just, um, that, that, that's really where that comes. It may or may not be part of my own personality anyway, but certainly to the, the value of it in, in working with groups, I, I certainly owe to Dr. Ormond. Mm -hmm. And Spotnitz too. It, it's a different style, but he was very, very funny. They had different kinds of humor, but they used yeah. it. And is it true? I think Ormond was actually a comedy writer. I, I, I believe so. Yeah. 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 I think so. You know, I was also thinking that you do process groups and you do supervision groups. So, along with this question um, came for me, wanting to hear any differences that you see uh, between leading a process group and leading a supervision group. Okay. Well, from my point of view, all groups are the same. They all um, have very simple dynamics, no matter what the purpose of the group is. That is, there's transferences to the leader, if there's a leader. There's forces of, uh, of co competition, of sub subgrouping, scapegoating, which is a way of subgrouping, um, things like that. So every group has the same things going on. And everything, and what's happening in all groups uh, is basically the same. Well, when I teach a class sometimes, I would say, uh, think back to your second grade class. Did you walk in and look around and see who you're going to be friends with, who you're not going to be friends with, who you're going to compete with, which group you're going to be part of, how you're going to get to the teacher? It's all the same. Mm -hmm. So the way it strikes me, and to answer your question, is that based on the contract or for that particular group, that kind of sets the level of metaphor that people sign up to work in. So, for example, a training group, a supervision group, has um, where the stated contract that people sign up for is to wor work with their clinical work or their professional work. Um, of course, um, personal uh, clinical work is about your personality and personal work uh, in the way you conduct it and you know, the resistances and blockages you come up with. So, so of course, it's very. Those groups are also very, very personal. You're exposing your work to other group members, just like you might expose yourself in a, in a psychotherapy group. But since the con uh, the contract is not to expose yourself in a direct way specifically, I try to honor the contract of the group of the group, and less and, and let the group as a whole perhaps move to more intimacy as a group that goes on. That is, all the groups I've been working with for a long time in the training realm, you've been there so you know that, I think, get more and more personal. Mm -hmm. And I feel that my, uh, so the metaphor goes from less abstract and less clinical work in those groups, for example, to, to frequently more personal. But I watch very carefully to see if that's working for everybody in the group. And if, if somebody just says, I didn't sign up for this, I honor that. Mm -hmm. That's another... Uh, Rosenthal always honors 
the, the, the person who, who appears to be the most resistant in the group, and that's something very va valuable I learned from him. Mm -hmm. So you're really trying to modulate like the stimulation level of the group to make it most accessible to everybody. Well said. Most kind of optimal. And it seems like you're also working in it, specifically in a supervision group in such a way that people get to kind of really um, support their professional ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very sensitive. Groups have primary opportunity for feeling shame in a group. I always think that any time you open your mouth in a group, you're individuating at that moment in front of a group of people. And so, and and being a professional in a group, when you present your work, it's very exposing. So I try to be very careful to support that and um, and uh, make sure the act of just um, the act of presenting your work needs to be honored, and then we can all figure out what to do with it from that point on. So when somebody's presenting their work, they're really taking a risk. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah, always. Is that what you mean by individuating as soon as they speak out there individually? Yeah, you are, you are alone in the group setting when you are talking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very vulnerable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of... Um, something that I heard you say recently, which has really stuck with me, and I've been thinking a lot about it, which um, you made the statement that you no longer, I think, subscribe to the idea of pathology. And it's... Uh, uh, don't let the insurance companies listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this context, in this day and age, where it's all about symptom reduction and targeting behaviors and all of these different kinds of things, it was uh, a striking thing to hear, and it's really stuck with me, and I've actually been looking forward to having this dialogue with you so I could hear you say more about that. Yeah. This notion of um, not believing in pathology, it's always context-dependent. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the fact that if I say I don't remember my exact words, but there's something like that. If I don't believe in pathology, that doesn't mean that there isn't pathology. It's just that I have chosen... Not to, not to live in that paradigm, I think would be a little more accurate. Uh -huh. um, especially in working with groups, uh, it, it strikes me, as, as we all read everywhere, that our culture is more and more isolating of individuals. We don't have group cultures. I did a presentation once on this book, Bowling Alone, which is a sociological study on how group life in America has just plummeted in the last 40 or 50 years. And the notion of that title is there's more people bowling, but fewer bowling leagues. It's happening everywhere. So to me, the value of groups, it, uh, even what's so-called psychotherapy groups, which I'm willing to call them that because I live in that culture, um, a professional culture, uh, is really about um, not curing anybody of anything, but getting people together and giving them the opportunity to really have... Uh, honest, open, integrative, interpersonal experiences in, in a group setting. It seems to me that's, the, that's what our society really needs, and that's what groups mean to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, other people can use the pathology paradigm, and that's fine, but I just, it's not where my heart is. So that, that would be, I think, the more accurate way to say, you know, it's not that I don't believe in it. It's just not where I'm going. Inspire, it yeah. doesn't inspire me. Yeah, it doesn't inspire me. And it seems like, in a sense, we have to say psychotherapy groups just to get people in the room. But yeah, yeah, exactly. The goal is just, it sounds like, to have people in a room interfacing, interacting, dialoguing with each other. Yeah, 
that's uh, that helps that helps people in life. And if that means they're curing themselves or they're getting cured of something pathological, that's great. But we all know that people talking in close quarters is really helpful to people. And it seems like we've been finding ways for doing it, for doing it as humans for thousands of years. Just in this day and age, in this context, we have to call it this one thing rather than yeah, this other. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm also thinking about, and you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of Spotnitz never um, getting too rooted in any one particular school or institution. He was kind of a free agent. Yeah. And I was thinking about you and how you market yourself. What's that word? But yeah, mark yeah. yourself as a psychotherapist. I, I, I don't often even hear you identify as a psychoanalyst, even though obviously that's been such a powerful part of your training. I wonder if you'd speak at all to staying flexible as a, as a psychotherapist, um, not having to or maybe avoiding the seduction of being branded in one particular kind of way. Yeah. Just... You thought you may have yeah. Well, I think what I one of the very mo- keystone pieces of learning that I've gotten from psychoanalysis, both in study and as a patient, is the notion of the unconscious, which we all throw around. But when you really think of it, it's really awesome. You know, I, I came up with this idea once that the um, the unconscious is something everyone else has. Meaning, the nature of the beast is you don't know your own conscious, except by inference, when you really get to know yourself. You, you can kind of feel when your unconscious is really at play. So, given that, if I call myself a, a psychoanalyst, for example, I don't know whether or not I practice at all if it looks like what psychoanalysts say they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I do do it the way I do it, and I think it the way I think it, but that doesn't mean that I could identify. I, I know a lot of psychoanalysts who... What they do does not look like, I don't think, what I do, and that doesn't mean what I do it is better or worse, it's just different. So I think it, uh, I've, I've gotten to just keep myself as generic as possible, and then it gives me more freedom to study my influences. So, just as I mentioned earlier, for example, uh, I, uh, Alan Watts has a wonderful way of look, working with the mind and language. I listen to his tapes, all of his talks, and his as as people might know, you know, he's been dead for 50 years, but there's lots of recorded stuff on his. And yeah, it influences my work, and Buddhism influences my work, and um, the movement world influences my work. Because when you, if you think of the way you work, the metaphors that come to you have to do with your world, and and the metaphors that just come to me spontaneously aren't necessarily of psychoanalysis, or they're they're at this stage just here, there, and everywhere. So that that's that's. So I'd rather just think of myself, I'm a psychotherapist because that's the name of the profession and that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And it keeps you open just to allowing whatever your unconscious associates to to bring that into the room. Yeah. I, I heard it said once somebody went to study, uh, that I know went to study uh, conducting. They hadn't been, uh, they hadn't been, uh, they'd taken some time off, hadn't done it for a long time. And they went to this big workshop and there were a lot of people there who were nervous. And the teacher very calmly said, look, all you're doing is conducting with who you are with your whole life experience up until this moment. And they went, ha! Ah. And that's sort of, it seems like, especially the, since I'm, uh, you know, I'm old these days in this stage of my uh, profession, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like that view just allows so much realization instead of having to um, be subscribed in a particular way to one way of doing things, and I do it this way because that's how I was taught to do it. It really invites kind of more just trusting the unconscious in the moment as it speaks to you? 
Yeah, I don't have a. Uh, if you if you subscribe too tightly to a theory, then you have a story that you're overlaying on the client, and it keeps you from. Uh, it seems to me the most important thing is to help the client talk about their story. Something Spotnitz said once was that um, what's helpful to the patient is not what you say, but what they hear themselves say. So from that point of view, all you're doing is helping people say what they have to say, and you trust that if they hear themselves talk enough about what they have to say, they'll find out about themselves and then they can make their decisions in life and how they make them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be worried about, well, is that uh, according to the way I'm looking at the, this person's resistance is this, or this happened because of this person's family did that. You don't have to worry about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You're freer. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to kind of fit them into a particular developmental scheme. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that's why sometimes what, if I go through these periods of reading or studying quite a lot of a particular theoretician, I actually feel blocked often when I'm meeting with a client. I feel too intellectualized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This kind of really speaks to more just uh, relaxing and just noticing what comes to mind, however odd it may be or how even if I don't understand necessarily why my mind might be going there, trusting something about it? Yeah, there was, um, uh, when I first joined the Buddhist community, you know, which was 40 years ago, and there's, there's you know, there, there's, the, in, in, any, uh, in any formal Buddhist um, um, practice, there's morning chants. And that a lot of them have been retranslated re, uh, re over the years, but there was one that one of the lines was uh, the essence of, Oh, something about the essence of something. It's nature is nowness. Uh, so, and Freud, I think, in his um, own way, in, in his way of looking at it, that said everything that happens in the room has to do with the transference somehow, and which which just makes common sense because if two people are in the room, everything has to do with what's with those two people being in the room. Mm -hmm. So one of the that does allow you a lot of freedom of free association because without necessarily knowing what it is, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, whatever comes up has to be of that of the relationship of the moment because you're in the room with the person or the group. So you can you can go with it. You might find out what what it is at that moment. You might not, but you can trust that it does. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, you know, where my mind goes with, with it in this moment is thinking back to being in the group class at Naropa. Mm -hmm. And uh, the very first day of the class, you telling us that uh, part of the contract was that there was no note-taking. Right. And, and this was very destabilizing for me at the time because I really relied on that, on note-taking. Uh, and actually still do, dare I say. But I remember um, it seemed like the invitation was not to have to remember anything per se, not to write anything down, as well as not to have that as a barrier between myself and the group. Right. To just really be there. Right. And to talk and to see what happened. Exactly. That's the whole purpose of it. You got it. It's just like therapy itself. Yeah. If you're teaching, that's the tricky thing about teaching psychotherapy um, in, a, in an academic setting, which is what we have to do, is the, the the it's important to be able to model the essence, the heart of psychotherapy. And if 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 you think, if I think that the heart of it is being present, then you got to do something to model being present. And note taking to me wasn't one of them, so <laughs> right. I, so I so I dismissed note taking. <laughs> 
I had to design the class accordingly that people couldn't be responsible for anything that they might write down and otherwise um, have to remember. So I just made that, wove that into the class. So I didn't take it lightly, but yeah. Well, I'm, I'm also thinking, Bob, about um, just where you are now in your life and having done this for as long as you have. And you continue uh, to seem so energized and so inspired by the work. And I wondered if you could speak to that, um, that energy, that vitality that you seem to have, that you both draw from the work and you bring into the work. And what continues to energize and inspire you about this work after all these years? Thank you. That's a, that's a touching question. Well, uh, other than the fact that constitutionally I have a lot of energy, it's just I'm born with it so I can do it, um, I think um, to have gotten this far to where I get so much satisfaction of it has its own resonance because I grew up as a person who had a lot of shyness and a lot of difficulty in um, just relaxing in group situations and being a part of group situations. And so I stumble into this field, as you heard, thanks to driving a taxi cab and that, and wind up with, a, with some magnificent teachers along the line and wind up in the, this wonderful place where we live, uh, which just suits me perfectly, with a, and the, the, the Buddhist and Naropa view, uh, uh, climate really did a lot to soften me up and get me, get my mind out of some of the harshnesses of being in New York. So I am so, at this stage, I am so grateful and enjoying it so much that, that the, 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 the energy of gratefulness really takes you a long way. And so I'm just, I'm just loving the opportunity to have been able to do it for this long and get the benefits. This, you know, there's so many professions in the technical world. By the time you're 30, you're out of it, you know. And this is a profession that really awards long, longevity if you stay with it. So I feel like I'm in that space right now. And as long as my uh, mental and physical health um, keep me doing it, there's I can't imagine doing anything else. Part of the part of the real gratification of it is seeing people like you who have just stepped in, and uh, it sounds so funny to say this, your generation just embracing it, uh, something of this, this way of working with, with associative, engaging, interpersonal, um, this kind of creativity, it is so rewarding. And when I do the supervision group, you don't know how jealous I get of all of you coming up with the things to, to say and ways of looking at, 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 your, at your clients and stuff, things that I haven't thought of. I just keep it to myself usually. <laughs> but it is both re it's rewarding and humbling because I see the new generation, and, you know, it won't be too long before I'm over the hill here. But it's, it's very, very um, rewarding in that way. I could, what would I do with my life if I, it just keeps my mind going and sharp. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it feels so really symbiotic in a way because um, for me as somebody who has now been in this field 10, 15 years, yeah. it really, it, there's so many models of people that struggle to maintain a kind of longevity with it. But the way that you model uh, longevity, being in this field in a way that's not just doing it sustainably, but that's doing it in a way that's so enlivening, it's so incredibly inspiring, and it kind of intensifies my own hunger and desire to really be in this field and to find ways of just really, really enjoying it. It's sometimes, I think, as you know, a very, very challenging field. There's trauma, the, the counter-transference of being in the room, the residue from that can really stick with you. 
um, it actually makes me wonder if you have any advice um, or any thoughts about if there are clinicians out there that are really um, looking for ways to make this feel more sustainable or are in work environments that are very, very stressful, just thoughts you may have for them or ways that you've managed some of the difficulty that can be involved in the field. Yeah. First of all, just be in a lot of groups. Um, group Peer groups. Um, groups like my group where you have a, a group leader. Form groups. You know, you're all, you, you've been in the you've you've been in the field, for example, long enough to where you could have your own supervision groups because they go as I'm pointing, they go both ways. They feed you. Just groups, groups, groups is to me what's sustainable is what keeps it going. That's why those of us who love groups love groups because they keep us going, mm -hmm. and because uh, the culture needs it. Right. So, but a, I'll tell you what I think has um, been. Um, I don't know how it's happened. But somehow, when I got to the point, um, probably from all the therapy I've had, of um, not worrying too much about making mistakes, being uh, uh, guilty of making mistakes, not feeling it particularly important to to be a kind of person that doesn't make mistakes or, or be the right person or smart person, it's so relaxing. It, it takes It's so efficient, to uh, energetically efficient to just... You know, you can go into a, a clinical situation after you've been in doing it 10, 15 years and basically just be yourself. And that's, and so if you're just yourself, you're really enjoying who you're being with, and that's very life sustaining. You know, we all know all this research about old people these days is that, that, uh, isolation, whether the latest is that isolation is like a pack and a half of cigarettes a day or something like that. You know, there's all, there's all these little measures that are coming out, and it, it just means that, um, uh, engagement is sustaining, and we are in a profession of engagement. There's an, it's amazing. It is <laughs> so amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it really is a matter of um, it's it's engaging, being willing to stay in engagement, and also it's a come as you are party. Yeah, it's a come as you are party. Just come as you are. Yeah, yeah, you're good enough. All my teachers are very relaxed. That I, I still have a couple of them who are in their well in their eighties. Uh, Rosenthal was 89 when he died. Ormont was 90. I mean, you know, it's sustained, it, it sustains you. Well, um, I have one final question for you. Yeah. And that is, we like to end the interviews by asking what you would see as your kind of current edge. Where do you see yourself continuing to grow as a group leader? Well, one is kind of mechanical. I'm doing a lot of stuff online with, on, with Skype type stuff. And I'm finding that really interesting because um, uh, I'm finding that, especially in groups, I, I, the number that comes into mind is that I've gotten to, to where the groups are working at about 90% of in the room, both at the clinical groups and supervision groups. So I'm really interested in how to um, make, how to do that. And the other thing, just because it's happening, is co-leadership, uh, which I'd never done much of, but... You know, at AGPA, I have a, 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 my colleague Gil Spielberg and I have been doing co-leadership for years there. We kind of set the stage for it and really, uh, along with uh, uh, distance learning, and it's really interesting. And I have a co-leader in um, a, a group that I just started this year uh, here locally, and um, uh, it's fascinating uh, for us to learn how to work together. He's very good. I learn from him all the time. I get very jealous of him all the time, even though I've been in the field longer, but... The, that doesn't really matter much. 
And I think that that's, uh, in particular, that's really been very interesting to me to, to figure out how to work with a co-leader in a group. Re really, there's a whole other dimension, you know, of what you're doing, how you're relating to each other as well as the group, uh, how the group is uh, seeing, uh, seeing you individually and the two of you. Really cool stuff. So that's been really fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. Gosh, I feel like uh, I'd love to have you on just to talk about that. I feel like that's a whole other interview that we could go into, differences between leading a group individually and leading as a co-leader, because it does seem like such an art form to allow each other space and not overstep i tell you one way where it really showed me how uh, challenging it is. Last year um, at, at AGPA, and it was two years ago, uh, when Gil and I started our group um, uh, together, well, he, just before we started, he had to, he couldn't be there because of an because of a external situation that he had to attend to the first time, so I did the first two days alone. It was so much easier. <laughs> I thought, after about halfway through, I said to myself, why is this so enjoyable? Oh, I know. It's because I'm alone. It's much more, um, it's much more challenging to be in the room with a co-leader. All the feelings of competition and style, everything comes up. It's, it, it's marriage. So, it's marriage, yeah. right? So, so that I'm finding, finding that, that's really cool stuff these days to figure that one out. Well, Bob, how could people follow up with you if uh, they're interested, if they listen to this podcast and they like to talk with you more or hear more from you? How oh, gosh, I can market myself. Yeah. Well, I have a website, uh, robertungerphd.com. That's probably the, where I, I do little blurbs of what I do and how to contact me. And, um, you know, uh, you can Google my, my phone number uh, easily enough and just call me. Call me or write me an email and um, we'll talk. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, well, Bob, this has been so much fun, well, and it's been such an honor to have you on the podcast. It's really been a dream come true in a way, so I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of this beautiful Sunday to uh, join me and to uh, do this interview. And I want to thank you for inviting me and um, providing me this opportunity to blab about my work and what I do. I feel very honored and privileged, and your 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 questions are only to show... Um, uh, your your own um, just your own seat you've taken in the field. So we have a we have a mutual admiration society going here. I think if people didn't figure it out yet, so so thank you. Well, I hope you'll come back and blab some more at another point. Would love to.